This episode is sponsored by Exactuals, perfecting insurance payments and the data driving them. Question that always people ask, so the Patagonia, is that sponsored by, by the <laughs> fund or is it just the, the uniform? Uh, I would say it's been uh, obviously a West Coast thing for a long time. Um, but uh, truthfully, um, I got introduced to the company probably in the late 1990s. I was a big fly fisherman, always have been. Um, and they've always made really great gear, really enjoyed it. Um, and as it sort of turns out, there's been a, obviously convergence of you know, you know, West Coast culture and um, you know, some of the things that I love. And I think that maybe the thing that um, um, a lot of people know this, but um, for those that don't, is they're just a really great company. Um, you know, they sort of, they align to values that I believe in. And, um, you know, they're both a capital making enterprise and also a um, impacting uh, organization for, for both the environment and communities. And um, I just think that's a, a really, they, they very much believe in um, the sort of foundation of the business and what it's about and the ethics there. And um, I'm always happy to support an organization like that. I think, you know, we look for that in the companies we invest in. And, um, you know, I'm not an investor in Patagonia, uh, but um, I can certainly uh, be happy to wear a vest or whatever jacket or uh, fleece that I happen to pick up. So, but it does seem to have embedded itself in the culture for whatever reason. Uh, maybe that makes you want to take it off. I don't know. No, no. Listen, I'm. I have a, I have a vest, and I have a couple of other products of them. So, as an investor, well, I'm, a, I'm a customer. I'm a great believer in what they do, and it's just, I'm sorry, it's, you know, it's a common joke. I think when, when was that? A year or two years ago, that someone started this, Twitter storm against the, the vests that Patagonia, most likely, it's someone in, in Silicon Valley, in, in San Francisco. How's the business? Oh, the business is great. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, 2020, we all kind of went in in Q1 thinking, man, this is going to be another record year. And then as COVID just continued to appear to take the march forward that um, it was in February and and then March, it just kind of, you know, obviously a lot of capital markets disruption and uh, for for a lot of companies that were raising, it was a really scary time. It still is a scary time. Um, you know, we're, we haven't sort of got our arms around that, but I think that um, through that process, we all thought that the capital markets would just really shut down, right? And um, a lot of companies would go through, um, you know, valuation down rounds and end up, you know, really cutting deeply, um, you know, not just cutting fat and cutting muscle, but cutting bone to really lean out their operations. And I think what we saw was um, a lot of folks definitely got lean. They, they sort of um, used the classic never let a good and never let a crisis go to waste. Um, but, you know, kind of got lean and really focused on, you know, what are we, what's a core to the business for them and leaned out their operations and, and ended up seeing a lot of uplift in, in terms of their customers. Um, you know, I think many people have said it before, but if COVID did nothing else, um, as tragic as it is, it certainly accelerated um, di digital business models by a factor of maybe 10 years, um, where we saw pipelines go from, you know, $5 million in pipeline to, you know, 35 million in pipeline in like three weeks. Um, 
for early stage companies. And so um, it, tremendous human tragedy, just it's unspeakable. It, it's it's going to be something that we're going to think about and talk about uh, for a long, long time and, and really kind of repair the wounds of and certainly take a lot of scar tissue with us. But it also uh, ended up being a tremendous um, wind in the sails of a variety of software businesses. And um, it, it is a great bit of bittersweetness to that, right? Where, you know, you never, you just can't celebrate the scale and sort of um, scope of the tragedy, but at the same time, it, it helped a lot of companies out. And so, um, uh, you know, I think you have to sort of take the good with the bad there and, um, and uh, sort of rec <laughs> reconcile that, um, the conflict yeah most definitely yeah i agree with you and it was it was very surprising here especially when you look at it from i'll say uh, the economics and the capital that is available because i would say that the past four years from it just something didn't make sense right the stock market is going the the interest rate is super low the money has nowhere to go, especially in the past year that even real estate, commercial real estate, that that's like the main stabilizer when we're looking at long term loans and the different bonds and the price of the bonds that come. So where will it go? Is it just going to the st uh, just in the market or can you actually divert that to the venture capital as one of those vehicles? And that before we jump into spec and talk about that, you know, actually, let's use that. You know, we've been uh, seeing more and more uh, companies using spec as a vehicle to raise money. I think that Hippo is already people talking about that Hippo is planning to do something about it in 2021. And we saw that with uh, with Ruth. What do you think about it? I think a, a SPAC is just another way of raising capital, right? And and I think you can you can take a very uh, thematic view of for companies that can't go IPO, maybe SPAC is the right way. But I think you have to sort of suck out the the thematic judgment there and really take a step back and say, well, why is all this happening, and and sort of what's causing all this activity? And I think a lot of that just comes down to. Um, the amount of capital in the world, right? And the fact that a lot of it has shifted from the public to the private sectors over the last 30 years. Um, and certainly the changes in regulation around IPOs in Sarbanes-Oxley in you know, late 1990s, early 2000s really changed things as well, where you know, companies are staying private longer. Um, and now we've gone through two global massive capital dislocations you know, in 2009 with the Great Recession and, and obviously the big um, V here in, in March you know, it's really resulted in a massive influx of, of capital. Um, you know, by some measures, 25% of all the cash that's ever been printed, or I should say money that's ever been printed, has been printed in the last 12 months. Um, and, you know, I'd say is that the earnings haven't increased by 25% in the last 12 months necessarily. So valuations, you know, continue to go up. And I think a lot of that is just an overhang of really at a, again, at a macro level, uh, the world sort of uses debt and because they use debt, they value growth. And so for those who can create growth, there's great opportunity. And for those who can't, there's less opportunity. And that's where I think you get these massive um, divergence in both multiples and valuations and, and capital that continues to go to the private markets. 
Um, and whether that's through private equity or SPACs or venture capital, um, the world is awash with these dollars looking for growth, um, given what Federal Reserve banks have done globally over the last, um, you know, uh, 12 years or so. And um, I think it's just going to continue to because of that. And, you know, I think it was $60 billion in, in capital was raised through um, to be invested in SPAC vehicles. And that capital has to go somewhere. Uh, investors don't commit capital for the funds to just sit on it, right? Um, they they sort of raise the capital to deploy. And um, I think it'll just continue this, um, this sort of SPAC trend. And I think also those businesses that have gone on or have gone through SPAC processes um, will end up unspacking or despacking over time where they will actually then either be acquired by, you know, mega buyout or end up being publicly listed in a different vehicle, right? Um, so I think the, the uh, for better or worse, um, the capital party will continue. So, hmm, I love it. Oh, yeah, this is for me for later editing stuff out. So whenever you need to, you know, to pause, we can pause. It's just more work for me later on. No but problem. But we can go back and forth, whatever. Um, I, what did I? Why did I stop? I wanted to come to ask you something before we continue, <laughs> which is brilliant, right? Um, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, uh, there was a point that I, I felt that it's more. It became this Q and A, and less of a conversation. But I blame the fact that I have a jacket on. So <laughs> I, I'll try. I'll try to make it more of a con you know, a lightweight conversation, although every time that we are on a Zoom, it turns into like, okay, here is the next question. <laughs> so, <laughs> no worries. Okay, we'll, we'll try to go back to that. Um, is nation, Nationwide is the only LP? That's right. Yeah, Nationwide yeah. is the uh, Zoom Limited partner. Yeah. Yeah, the only reason I'm asking is because Usually the expectation is a return of 8% annually from a fund. And then it's uh, with all what we see now on the macro level, is that the right way to see it? And especially, is it easier to get new LPs if uh, if it's not, uh, well, not in your case, but other uh, VCs? What do you think? I think there's a lot of money out there, including um, through different sort of limited partners, whether that's endowments, um, uh sort of public markets um you know through uh you know specialty vehicles um just across the board uh, family offices there's just a lot of money out there so i i don't think it's ever easy to raise money um in a fund uh, i think of every new fund as basically a startup um raising capital but instead of looking for three or four investors they're looking for 20 to 40. so that's always a challenge but there's there's a lot of capital out there and um you know, I think that there's both advantages and disadvantages of, um, you know, having different types of LPs and different numbers, whether it's a sole LP or not. Yeah, what do you think about AngelList? Did, didn't they solve a little bit of that problem? Yeah, to a certain extent they did. And I think um, ultimately providing folks access to more companies to invest in is a net benefit, right? So no doubt about it. Um, I, I do think that folks should always think about adverse selection and where they look for deals. Um, and the concept is, uh, if, if they're talking to you, right, they've probably talked to other people and maybe those other people have said no. So, 
Um, and we ask ourselves the same question, right? Which is why are they talking to us? Um, why do they want to talk to us? You know, why us specifically? Which is a, not a question that a lot of investors ask themselves, but uh, I think folks on AngelList should ask themselves the same questions. If there are other companies that have done similar things um, and have become successful, right? Maybe, is there, maybe there's learning in the market. Maybe there's a precedent um, with the companies and our markets or products. And um, But I think AngelList is a great vehicle. I think those will continue to proliferate. And the great irony about all that, and, and I, I sort of apologize for going on long here, is that, you know, um, we've, we've defined uh, accredited investor based on uh, dollar thresholds, right, of people who can invest, right, which is you've got to be an institutional investor and have X many thousands of dollars in your bank account and earn X amount of dollars. Meanwhile, the folks um, who are writing regulation to sort of equitize that and make it more equal for folks um, for retail investors are making below institutional investor salaries right so the people who are writing the rules know a lot about the rules and how, you know these vehicles just alternative investments in startups and you know private equity and yet they can't even invest in themselves well that seems to be a little bit of a problem right so what what's an accredited investor well someone who has the knowledge and experience to to, to invest it isn't necessarily a income threshold or a, a balance sheet size necessarily. So I think as long as we sort of build additional vehicles for people to invest, that's a good thing. And um, hopefully we'll make rules and the world will evolve to sort of think about um, these new platforms and new ways that retail investors can continue to invest in uh, creative and you know, return making ways. With vehicles like AngelList and other syndication enabling people to invest in private uh, companies, that provides them so much new opportunities, especially when we have this volatility and uncertainty in the current market. Now, taking it a little bit back to what we discussed, seeing all kinds of, still we see investments, you know, the classical investments in the Inishotech space. And this is more or less where uh, our domain of expertise, I would say. Yeah, today I saw another uh, another investment of, uh, I think it was a, a seed or a series A of a th uh, three point something million in a startup for commercial insurance, a Joshua or something like that. Is there a need for another one? Well, or it's where? a great, it's a, it, it's a fantastic question. And um, the answer is, I don't know. And I don't, you know, I don't know if anyone knows. Um, and the reason why I say that is sort of look, look at what a lot of the insure tech leaders have done over the last five years. You could also ask yourself the question at the same time when they were getting a seed check at Series A check, like, does the world need this? Is, mm -hmm. is the world missing something? And there's oftentimes these secrets embedded inside these companies around how uh, systems are connected and, and data can be analyzed um, across silos the way it couldn't have been before that you know, creates new opportunities, right? And so um, you wouldn't think that there would necessarily be innovation to be had in some of those companies, but yet, in fact, fast forward three years and you realize, wow, well, you know, here's what we missed, right? They connected all their disparate data lakes and data silos uh, they were able to iterate inside the customer funnel because they were digital first, right? And the, the combination of all these layering effects of um, 
that are all complementary create something brand new to market, like a company we invested in in Next Insurance. And it wasn't necessarily always obvious early on that it was going to be hyper successful. But, you know, sure, sure enough, you know, again, you fast forward in, a, you know, five years or so and you realize it, what they've done is pretty disruptive. And so it's it's tough to judge these immature businesses without seeing those secrets and seeing what they're seeing on the inside. And so I may say no now. We may realize something in three years that we didn't know today just being on the outside. So I, that's why I'd say I don't know. At what stage did you invest at Next? We invested in their Series B in, I believe it was 2000, early 2017. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they just, I think they had great team, you know, really had a crisp strategy. They knew exactly what they wanted to do. Um, and I think, you know, invested in a period where they were just gaining, you know, market traction and really finding product market fit. And they've just taken off since. Um, and, um, Yeah, it's been a it's you know great team there, and um, we've been very lucky to to sort of be involved and uh, invest in the company. Hi, you, you guys have very interesting companies in your portfolio. So within selling the products and distribution, you have Next, you have Matic, also close to my heart, and uh, and residents. Except that um, he ju um, Benny just moved to San Diego, I think. Although still registered at Santa Monica, uh, then of course, well, uh, what we love and, uh, and appreciate. Then of course you have a lot of uh, fintech and retirement. If it's Bloom, uh, Blue Vein, if I remember correctly, and two other, and the interesting yep. ones, uh, a little bit of uh, IoT. The one that I actually liked. Um, what's the name of it? Um, Nexar or the one with the cameras. Yeah, Nexar. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool idea because you already see all kinds of uh, Uber drivers that have some sort of uh, this solution in the car. So why not, you know, integrate it and then uh, reduce the risk or especially the claim process. Yeah, and uh, it, uh, Tesla has done a fabulous job. Um, bringing software to uh, an, an ecosystem and a product line in a way that it um, had been delivered, but not quite the scale that Tesla is operating at. Um, mm -hmm. But you can sort of see the value of, of uh, machine vision um, and software and sort of combined with mobility. I think Nexar is taking a similar approach, which is saying, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very overused term, but everyone has smartphones, right? But the reality is, is that compute has become so powerful and inexpensive. Um, bringing that into a smart dash cam and embedding machine vision and AI and connecting that into a software platform using um, your, you know, your smartphone is just, it's going to happen, right? And so software that will yeah. creep into every corner of everything. Um, and that's part of the reason why we invest, invested in Nexar is that you know, they saw the same vision um for where they wanted to take the company and um obviously they've done fabulous things um growing their company and growing the technology it's been really fun i love to see those technologies if it's using a lidar or a mobile eye or whatever the different solutions and then you see that super amazing technology and try to well successfully integrate them into the insurance space or 
any other thing. And that opens up like two directions of conversation that I would love to explore. And the first, you know, aren't you happy that we don't talk about blockchain anymore? And <laughs> most of the buzzwords that we're dealing and also investments are only in AI. <laughs> It's funny. Um, I think people... Uh, I give people a lot of credit. People understand what distributed means, right? And, and sort of, um, you know, cryptography and the value of cryptography. I think, so I give people a lot of credit for that. And I think people understand also the value of algorithms and, um, you know, supervised and unsupervised machine learning. But how do you sort of like pull all those concepts together into one word? Well, it's a natural heuristic to just make it this one term, right? Blockchain and AI and, you know, what have you. And um, it makes it easy to talk about. But there's so mm -hmm. much disparate technology and value proposition underneath that. It's kind of like uh, talking about food, right? We're like, well, I'm doing a food startup. We're like, well, okay, well, tell me more about that. Um, what do you mean? Um, I think same thing with, uh, with uh, cryptographic uh, assets and blockchain and, and certainly, um, you know, machine vision, machine learning, deep learning technologies and AI. It's like, what are we even talking about? What are we talking about here? And, and I am not a professed expert here, uh, but what I would say is that uh, it's really complicated and a lot of credit to the people who are building technologies in that area. Making it simple for folks is really challenging. I had a speaker who is a specialist in the space, especially on blockchain, and I'm so sorry that I forgot his name now. I'll put it in the comments later on. And the analogy that he used four years ago, and I love it because I'm, I'm keep using it, blockchain or and AI, two different topics, right? They are the same thing as the innovation or the introduction of the Steam engine. Now, out of nowhere, you have the ability to introduce force that can scale up something that you could have done earlier. Now you have a force. So if everything was manual, now you can introduce, well, Newtons into the factor and scale things up to whatever that may be. Same thing, blockchain, AI. And for now, as, as you just mentioned, I, I'm more, you know, tending to the AI. I'm happy that we don't hear too much about blockchain for now. Maybe we'll, you know, Revisit that in the future with something that is more substantial. But till then, yeah, we can talk about the other thing that you mentioned earlier, which is the uh, telematics. We, we see uh, General Motors are looking into that. Uh, BMW, Porsche been playing with that for, for many, many years. And of course, Tesla, which is basically one software that has a little bit of a car around it and a very cool car, by, by the way. Uh, is that what do you think about that? How is that going to, you know, to improve, you know, from fleet to to the private sector? Yeah, How I, we the yeah. Sorry, I think telematics is a is a huge category, right? Where we're talking about yeah. so many different things in, inside telematics that it gets it gets really challenging to to sort of pull out the pieces of, of, of what is it, what, it, what does it mean? In the insurance context, obviously there's no better pricing engine, right? If you can get an embedded telematics um, solution, you really learn a lot about that driver. And, and yeah, I think you may not know about if they're using their phone, if they're not, or you know, is, is the telematics approach embedded in the smartphone? Is it embedded in the vehicle? Where is it? Where is the sensing device? Um, 
and, and there's a lot to learn there, but uh, it, it's obviously the best way to price a risk. There's no doubt about it. But I also understand why folks might not be interested in a company knowing everything about where they go if they're only interested in the risk uh, piece of it. You know, we've largely all sort of subscribed to the grand bargain in the 21st century where, you know, we get a free product by giving away our data, right? So, you know, you look at a lot of the social media companies, that's, that is the value proposition, right? We get served ads as the way to monitor. <laughs> a little bit. Um, and, but I think that there are people who are retreating from that grand bargain um, and, and really thinking, what am I getting for this thing? And certainly telematics, you know, what you're getting is, uh, you know, an accurate price. And so in some cases, that's a discount. Some people don't want to subscribe to the grand bargain anymore, right? They're sort of saying to themselves, hey, I, I don't want a company to collect my data. And I think there's got to be a product for those people, you know, because the other side of the telematics, right, is that you might be pricing people really well and giving people discounts on one end. But what about the people who are not driving well, right, and, and don't want to get better, right? They just want to price, right? So if, the, if you have a pool of risks and you're, you're sort of allowing one end to get a better price, what happens to the other end? Um, and in some cases, yeah, that's the biggest pro mm -hmm. no, it's no a big way. problem. Was... Yeah, it's a big problem. You know, we're talking about people who, you know, maybe they're not thinking about risk and insurance. Maybe they're just trying to make ends meet, right? Maybe they're just trying to get to their job and, you know, they've been struggling in life and they're not thinking about insurance or what their price is. And are we going to price them more harshly because of, you know, potentially, um, you know, bad social determinants? I, I certainly hope not. And, and, and I'll just be honest, speaking as a driver who, you know, tries to be as safe as I possibly can, I actually feel good about subsidizing the worst drivers. I don't necessarily love paying a higher price, but if it's a social good and someone's absorbing it, that's not a bad thing for me. Yeah. And let's not forget that that's part of the work of the commissioners and the regulators, making sure that there is that pool. And it's, it's a little bit of philosophical uh, question uh, because, <laughs> needless to say, we're going to see so many different opinions about how much the government needs to intervene. However, you need to have it. Otherwise, you don't have the pool of risk and you don't have the bare minimum of coverage. And I'll give um, a shout out uh, to Just, which, which are sort of a competitor, but what they are doing, it's sort of a cheap, they need to use your telemetry. I think that they are using the phone for that, but hey, the only thing that you need to do, you have a, a how you call that, a, a second-hand car lot here, no problem. You got the car, you got the insurance, and you can drive off, no problem. You have yeah, the bare minimum of what you need. And it's good for consumers to have choices, right? You should allow people to have as much choices as the free market, you know, will allow, right? Because mm -hmm. I think ultimately that will drive better products and more efficiency and, and more consumer surplus and benefit. And so, you know, as a, someone who believes in the power of capitalism with the right um, constraints, uh, I think that's a good thing. I think it's a really good thing. Yeah. yeah. Do you think 2021 is going to be just another 2020? I do. I, I think it will, Isn't that in sad? a way that we are, we are really not happy about, I think 2021 is going to feel a lot like 2020, um, where, uh, where I would say is that there's just going to be a lot less uncertainty. And so in that, yeah. in that regard, I think it's going to feel 
very different. But I think, you know, if you fast forward five to 10 years, they'll have more in common than I think we would want them to, would be my anticipation, which is that I think there's going to be the businesses that have benefited from the pandemic will continue to benefit. Um, I think that, you know, the pain will still be felt sort of across the board. And I think investment in tech and fintech is going to continue. Um, and I think for lots of reasons that's going to occur, but I think it's just going to continue to accelerate. Um, you know, we said we thought 2020 was a black swan. And I think we realized it's actually maybe in the traditional way. It actually is a black swan, which is much more common than we would prefer to like to think. Yeah. Now, when I see when I look at 2020, the uncertainty of basically, well, Q1 was almost no one, almost normal, but Q2 was basically a disaster. But having said that, that's, you know, personal in other <clears throat> in other um, areas. But from an initial tech, we had an amazing year. It yeah. was another record of investments, a new record of mergers and acquisitions, uh, several exits. One of the things that was very interesting, you see Bold Penguin acquiring um, one of the geniuses, uh, Risk Genius or Policy Genius, no, one of the geniuses. And then uh, last week it was acquired by uh, American Family. You had all these, all these are things and exit and more money and more capital is injected into the space to, you know, to enable further growth. Now, have you seen any difference between investment now and what you're looking into 2021 in terms of the stages? Are you, you guys are doing usually series A and above, right? Yeah. So typically we're, you know, we're looking at series A, B and C stage businesses. Um, and that's in part to both. That's where we can find our most commercial opportunity when we invest in a company like that. Um, but it's also the one where the relationship capital that we try to imbue into the company and into nationwide carries the longest because there's fewer pivots and sort of major strategy changes in the company because they're sort of in a little bit farther into the product market fit. So we generally invest A, B, and C, you know, average check size between, you know, one and 10 million, um, pretty flexible when it comes to capital and, and ownership as long as the economics make sense um, and there's you know multiple strategic shots on goal so um, uh, i would say for 2021 i think there's going to be likely just more later stage companies um, you know typically every year we're taking a look at uh, new company formation series a seed investment series a investment angel investment kind of where things are going and you know, year after year for every year since 2015, there's been more and more growth stage um, investment. I think you know, look back in 2016, 2017, we got calls from institutional uh, venture investors who had not made an insure tech investment asking us the question, what are the metrics that we should be looking at here? Um, and, and and that's not because that's they aren't really bright question. people, right? They're all super bright people. We're super lucky to work with all of them. Uh, but the question was, what were the Series B metrics for insure tech companies? I think we figured it out, right? And, um, you know, folks are now looking at premium run rate and, and growth and attrition. And they're, you know, they've gotten pretty darn wise about what they're looking at and why they're interested. And, and that has really helped later stage companies raise additional capital and, and ultimately get to IPO and or an exit that they're looking for uh, and the overall maturation of capital markets. So I think there's going to be more of that. 
I hope we don't lose the seed investing though, because um, that's really where the rubber hits the road and a lot of the new gets put together. New teams are capable of doing new things. And, mm-hmm. and that's where I hope there's, you know, continues to be a lot of folks that uh, take big swings at, um, uh, at, at the sort of um, the world of insure tech. And so I hope there's just as much or proportionate amount of seed investing and seed formation as there was before, but we'll see. Do you think we are missing something? Because the way that I see that, um, I'm, and I'm talking about 20, 2020, 2021, the focus now by the insurance companies is on saving cost. If earlier we saw the different trends over the year, it was distribution and the mindset just, I'll put money wherever I can increase my distribution and sh- you know, show me where the revenue is. I put $1, I want to see 1.2. Nowadays, especially with COVID wage, you know, with reorgs and all kinds of other things, they started to invest money or to allocate budgets for projects that will save the money which is another part of the digital transformation mindset. Um, yeah. I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a, there's a reason why InsureTech 1.0 was very much distribution focused and maybe InsureTech 2.0 and 3.0 is really ops focused and, and maybe that's better fit for core software where I think uh, or it would appear that folks who started off in those first entrepreneurs we're trying to fix the, the customer attachment point, right? The experience that they had that they needed oh, yeah, to fix, right? They, it the just makes sense the reason why they, exactly. It just makes sense that that's the place they started, which is this was too hard. It can be easier and smarter and cost less and you know all those things, right? Cost and convenience. And so they started companies and they built companies in that space and they did a great job of it. Um, that said, investment in that area, it, you know if it's working or not in that you can watch the top line grow or not. The, the question for the you know incumbents of the of the world is how do you track uh, and operationalize the KPIs of cost out using software because that's not easy right like how much was it the book just changing how much were the customers the products changing how much was it just in you know installing this new piece of software that helps me around risk mitigation or cost out those things are hard to tease out and it's hard to give people credit for those things where it's easier to give people credit for sales goals so that's where i think yes there's huge opportunities around operational efficiency you know people ask me all the time what is insure tech and i say it's people and paper um and you know using software for that uh and certainly uh, operational efficiency is a huge area as a as an industry, as a as investors, we all need to figure out how uh, to business case that because that's what customers are buying against. You know, they're not buying the software just because it's an idea, and and you might get a pilot without good KPIs, but you're not going to land a contract. And that's where I've really seen a lot of sophistication. People are getting really bright about this and learning how to business case this and help clients walk through this um, and implement technologies around a business case and show them what to focus on and how to measure the success. And I think that's just going to continue to cascade through the industry where folks get better at business casing those things and um, KPIing them in, a, in an intelligent way. But I agree. I think operational efficiency is going to be a huge driving factor for you know Wave 2.0 and 3.0. So what are we missing? What can we do to help facilitating, facilitating that? By the way, um, I'm interviewing um, Dan White from 90 and Alchemy Group, 
uh, with uh, Sabine Vanderbilt and uh, in a few weeks if you have a good question please let me know because <laughs> I think that's part of that ecosystem um, but going back to my original question so what do you think is missing or what we in the ecosystem programs whatever that may be what can we do to improve it because it seems to me that we need you know some sort of a, a spark or something that will help the corporate the startups uh, the venture bringing people together yeah it's a great question i've thought about that a lot myself i don't necessarily have a great answer i do have an answer which works for me which is everyone's speaking different languages corporations are speaking different languages investors are speaking another language and you know startups are speaking as close but maybe not the same language but really you're going through one two three right now so you go from startup to corporate it may rhyme but it may not make a ton of sense where those languages are very different and I think it, maybe what it comes down to is how do you speak from the same um, both place of honesty and transparency where mm -hmm. Startups need to learn how to communicate and learn from the things that they pick up in conversations with corporates about uh, sensitivities and and sort of the political landscape and you know who owns the budget, what what's the buying criteria, and really they those folks there should empathize with those companies that are, they're trying to sell to. Whereas also corporates should learn what it's like as best they can to start a company where. You're worried about payroll and you know raising capital and retaining you know your star developer you know jane who's has a great offer from google right they don't always understand sort of those challenges and i think maybe it comes down to how can we be as transparent and uh, empathetic across all of those uh, various stakeholders as possible so that by being transparent and empathetic you both learn but you also save people's time right where um, you know, we've heard from time to time, you know, startups kind of grumble, not necessarily with us, but maybe with others is that, you know, sure, certainly us as well, right? Which is, I don't know what they said, because I don't know what the next step is, right? As a yeah. corporate, we can say, this isn't a good fit. This is the reason why. We'd love to talk to you in the future. Maybe you can spend this next 45 minutes talking to another company instead of reaching out to me again, because I'm not going to be a buyer until you get to X, Y, and Z. That's the type of transparency people, you know, entrepreneurs really need. It's very rare to find it. It's yeah, very, very rare. And, and it's just so critical, right? Because people need the truth, but they also need to have trust in the truth. And that's where empathy goes a long way. Whereas you empathize with people, you build trust with them. And that's why I think you need both the empathy and the transparency uh, at the same time. Otherwise, it's just there's something missing there. So let me ask you a question, which is completely a different topic. What's the sure. story of the football behind you? <laughs> the football behind me is uh, signed by my favorite football player of all time, which is Brian Dawkins. He was, uh, I'm originally from Philadelphia. I uh, grew up a Philadelphia sports fan, but I was always the less aggressive, more um, uh, contemplative, maybe Philadelphia fan, but still have a that sort of Philadelphia um, sports uh, streak. So he was a safety for my the, my favorite football team, the Philadelphia Eagles, and uh, just grew up admiring him. Um, and 
uh, had the opportunity to get assigned football after they won the Super Bowl in 2017, also the year he was inducted into the uh, Football Hall of Fame. Uh, and it just kind of reminds me of, um, I think, a great role model uh, of someone who can have passion, but uh, also treat people with a great deal of respect and, and work hard. So a real role model in my life. And I get to look at that football and be reminded on, of him uh, in meetings like today. Are you missing going to games or have you, when was the last time that you went to a game? The last time I went to a football game was college uh, a couple years ago. The last time I was at a professional game was probably 2013 or somewhere in that range. Uh, I don't know if I enjoy a great football game, a live one. The, the great football games live are truly amazing. I'm not sure if the average football game is as good as being in a very comfortable couch, hanging out at home, having the opportunity to cook whatever you want and, um, you know, be able to use a clean bathroom if you ever need to. Right. So uh, I think the at home experience, um, the average at home experience for me is a little uh, more enjoyable. But uh, I, I one day I'll get back. That. Yeah, I, I think that I will add to that also the, the price of the beer and the quality of the beer and <laughs> how much time it takes you from buying it to actually go back to your seat and give the rest of the beers that you just uh, bought. But uh, that's a, uh, it's, it's part of normality that I'm, you know, not a big uh, fan or I haven't gone to many, many games, but uh, it's something that, you know, it's the small things that we miss. Yeah. Um, yeah. By the way, I, other... I, I, I miss them as well. Uh, as an extrovert, it's not just, you know, the opportunity to talk to folks such as yourself and, um, you know, chat once in a while and get on weekly phone calls. I think it's the it's the authentic relationship building of, of sort of being in person and laughing together and, you know, taking notice of life um, mm. and sharing observations, which, you know, or sometimes are just pure serendipity and uh, unfortunately still missing that. But, um, you know, sacrifices uh, around keeping folks safe, I'll, I'll, happy, I'll be happy to make them. What's your COVID routine? What have you been yeah. doing during the lockdown? COVID routine. Got it. Uh, well, I, I, have a, I have a COVID routine, um, like many folks. I uh, prefer to get up really early uh, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays um, if I can. So, you know, really enjoy early mornings, um, even though I'm not a morning person. So it's just a quiet time to be awake before the world is. Uh, I love Peloton, always on my Peloton, maybe four times a week, certainly. Um, that's been really good. Uh, once it gets a little bit warmer, I'll be running in the mornings. Also a favorite activity of mine, even though I'm pretty slow, um, but enjoy that. Uh, and walking the dog. So anything outside is part of my COVID routine. Um, I think uh, getting coffee in the morning from a, a local coffee shop is also part of the routine. And that's that's more if I don't go to a coffee shop, I will not see a single person live other than my very thoughtful and supportive wife who was also working from home. But I won't see anybody throughout the day other than through mediated through a screen. So I try to get out at least once a day and kind of observe the world and, and remind myself that uh, once we get through this together, there will be a, a wide world of people to both continue to learn oh, from nice. and laugh with and interact with. So excited for one day that'll happen. Before we finish and 
any book recommendations for for the people that are listening or watching uh i'd say the two books that i would always put at the top of people's list um would be um uh, you've all know harari sapiens just an absolute amazing book and a, a great great way of reframing the way you think about our place um as people in sort of time and in history um fabulous book and then the second one would be um uh if i can get the name here it's uh private uh truths and public lies which is a book uh, uh, about preference falsification so people saying something versus what they think um actually think inside and so it's an interesting story of um sort of say versus do and the sort of differences between those things so also a great book pretty hard to find at this point but a fabulous read nonetheless this is why i do this podcast only for the book recommendations that's a new one for me i'll make sure to check it out i'm serious i've i've been collecting so i'm posting of course the book recommendations and i think that i realized from the last episode that i posted that um so this week so that will be with eight gays and he was talking about endur- endurance and 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 i realized that i i have that book already but i never had the opportunity to read it but that's that's fantastic especially when you learn about a new book brian thank you very 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 much for joining me today it's been such a pleasure having this uh, conversation over coffee indeed thank you very much galad it's been a pleasure yes indeed thanks <laughs>